This episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, and they have a question for you. ZipRecruiter wants to know, do you know the difference between working hard and working smart? Because according to ZipRecruiter, here's the difference. Working smart is about spending your time effectively, not just spending your time, not just chilling, not just listening to a podcast, although you got to do that too. You got to do that. Keep listening. Keep listening. But here, let me tell you a little bit more about ZipRecruiter. They use technology and tools to make hiring more efficient and effective for you. What that means for you is if you are looking for somebody to fill a job, they send your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with one click. And the technology they use, it doesn't just stop there. It scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job, and it actively invites them to apply. So with ZipRecruiter, you get qualified candidates fast. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter, they get a quality candidate throughout the site within the very first day. So... If you want to try it, if you are looking for somebody good to work for you, what you can do right now is you can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash upon. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash U-P-O-N to try it for free. ZipRecruiter, the fastest way to hire. And now, let's get started with the show. Back when I got back to California, every boy in school saw Enter the Dragon, except me. In fact, I even heard a kid even say, wow, is there any movie that anybody, that that more kids have seen more than Enter the Dragon? And they were like, no, there's not. Well, except for me. But I didn't even let people know I didn't see it. And I had heard enough about it. And you never let yourself be put in that position again. You've uh, yeah, always yeah. now yeah. seen yeah. everything. Well, I never let, I, I I could talk enough about it as if I had, as if I had seen it. Tarantino is famous for two things, making movies and watching movies. Now that you're so busy, are there, do you have to make choices? Are there things you don't see? Oh, no, well, look, look, I'm not in my 20s anymore, so there's a whole lot of stuff. Uh, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff I don't see. I mean, you know, it, um, um, How do you decide what not to see? Well, it's more like, how do I decide what to see? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more the side of the seesaw, the way it is. Um... I found myself watching older movies more. Also, I have a big thumbprint collection, and I have the new Beverly at my disposal. So if I really want to see 35mm, I could watch 35mm every night of my life. And he can watch those old 35mm with a crowd at his new Beverly Cinema, where he programs all the movies. Owning your own movie theater is like the steroidal superhero version of when Quentin was a video store clerk. Now, instead of recommending one movie to one person— Every night, he handpicks a double bill to show two hundreds. But during the time when I wasn't a film critic, just in my 20s and working in a video store, I saw everything anyway, all right? And I paid for it. And uh, and and I was kind of okay. I was even okay seeing movies I didn't like, because at least I could say I saw them. I knew how I felt about them. So for me, wanting to leave the house and go watch a DVD, which is what I consider digital projection, to go watch a DVD with strangers— which is basically just television and public, all right, I have to either be bored or I really, really want to see the movie or I just really want the movie theatrical experience and I don't care that it's just a crappy DVD. I mean, do you keep up with, like, The Avengers? No. No. I I started to, uh, um, when everyone started talking about Endgame to such a degree, um, I think the last— I think the last superhero movie I paid to see at the movie theater was uh, Wonder Woman. Um, no, I take that back. I mean, I did pay to see Wonder Woman, but I uh, no. While I was making the movie, I went and saw Shazam. All right, uh, but 
I, ha- I think the last uh, Marvel one I saw at the theaters was uh, uh, Black Panther. So I got, I, I didn't get caught up in everybody's talking about Endgame, but, every, but you know, the entire world, they were having, the entire world was having a zeitgeist discussion about two things, neither of which I followed, <laughs> either Avengers or Game, Game of Thrones. Um, but so you it, get to feel out of the loop. Yeah, well, I, the, the, I, I'm, I'm used to being out of the loop now. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the thing about it was, um, I wasn't even tempted for Game of Thrones, but to some degree, the Ed Game discussion did tempt me a little bit. So I started to, at home, started to watch a couple of the Marvel movies to see if I could catch up on my own in a way that would be interesting. So I watched, uh, 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 I hadn't seen it before. I saw Captain America Civil War and I saw Thor Rands Rocks. So I'm kind of working my way down to them. <laughs> Welcome to the second episode of Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. All right. Hey! I'm your host, film critic Amy Nicholson, and this is the three-part miniseries where we try to get inside the movie-mad mind of Quentin Tarantino. I've picked five movies that have played the new Beverly. Point Blank, Enter the Dragon, Valley Girl, Hollywood Shuffle, and Boogie Nights to see how they connect to Quentin's life and career and his new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you want a little love in there, you gotta start with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is finally out. So while I did not get into any specific plot points in episode one, as of now, they are fair game. You've been warned. Also in episode one, I'll be honest, I was surprised to learn that young Quentin saw Point Blank, this gorgeous, violent thriller in theaters, when he was like six. That's the same age he was when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood takes place. 1969, a time when Hollywood is about to undergo a major change. The Manson murders made the whole town start locking their doors. And the Easy Rider hippies, they were motorcycling in to chase out all the old stars, like Leonardo DiCaprio's 50s cowboy Rick Dalton. And even though Quentin was a kid, he was aware of all of this. His parents took him to the movies, and when they divorced, his mom's boyfriends got on his good side by taking him to the theater. It all worked out, except for the year that it didn't, which happens to be 1973, the year of Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon was a massive hit, starring Bruce Lee as a Shaolin martial artist turned spy who competes in a tournament on a private island to learn more about the competition's evil ringleader, Mr. Han. A good fight should be like a small play, but played seriously. The movie was huge. It changed pop culture. And it turned Bruce Lee into a megastar. Before this moment, Bruce Lee was a talent waiting for his big break. He'd spent the majority of his time in old-school 1960s Hollywood as a stuntman and a TV sidekick and a part-time kung fu teacher to real-life students Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Not thinking, yet not dreaming. Ready for whatever may come. 
But Bruce Lee never got to enjoy the success of Enter the Dragon. He died the month before it was released. And Quentin Tarantino, who loves Bruce Lee so much that Uma Thurman spent Kill Bill wearing Bruce Lee's famous yellow jumpsuit, he didn't get to see it either because his parents had sent him back to Tennessee. I have one big, giant hole in my 70s film-watching calendar, and that was the year I was in Tennessee, uh, which was like from uh, 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 June of 72 through uh, uh, May of uh, uh, 73. So you spent a year feeling almost a little more isolated from film because you'd been right in the thick of it here, going to double features all the time downtown, and then you're back in Tennessee where I don't know what the theater scene was. No, well, there was no theater scene. There was one drive-in. There was one drive-in, and uh, uh, it was only open during the summertime. And uh, so me and some of my friends would walk to see movies. The only, other than like uh, 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 Grindhouse regional movies that w- you know, would play there but wouldn't play in Los Angeles, that would like come through town really quickly, something like Hot Summer in Barefoot County or something like that. Were you uh, frustrated by that? Yeah, it was very frustrating I, because uh, all the theaters were in Knoxville, and we just had this one drive-in. The only, the only new movies that actually played was White Lightning and then Walking Tall. But then Walking Tall, once it played, it played there all summer long. Uh, but oftentimes it would be, because it was just like a, a, somebody's son who ran the drive-in. It was just whatever the exchange house sent him. So it was like, oftentimes it was movies like a few years old. So it was like biker films did really good. So all of a sudden you'd get like Evil, George Hamilton's Evil Knievel and William Smith's Chrome and Hot Leather. Chrome and Hot Leather. Now, we all love that. That was all great. But what was driving me crazy was it's like all the movies of 73 I didn't see in 73. I saw them later. So I didn't see Paper Moon when it came out. I saw it two years later on a double feature with uh, Tatum O'Neill double feature with uh, Bad News Bears. I didn't see The Exorcist when it came out. I saw it in 75 during its re-release. I didn't see The Sting when it came out in 73. I saw it in 75 during the re-release, back when they used to do big re-releases. It's but hard if, to imagine you feeling so out of pop culture. I mean, you know, I, did, I didn't see Serpico until two years ago. All right? I mean, like, 73 was the year I saw fuck all and uh, um did you even know bruce lee had died yeah no 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 i uh, no you, you knew bruce lee died before enter the dragon opened actually um but the thing that was killing me more than anything else was 73 was the was the year of the martial art movie explosion and none of that was playing by me i mean there was only one drive in any old way but uh you know we were in a place called south clinton and the the biggest town next to us that would have a lot of theaters was Knoxville. And they had a lot of theaters in Knoxville. We're like trailer park trash. I mean, there was no way I'm going to talk my grandmother into driving to another city to go see a fancy, to go to a fancy movie theater. I mean, you know, she was a, 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 you know, she was a hillbilly. She was, she she was poor. She didn't like going out in public. I mean, even if if she even went to a, a coffee shop, she felt nervous that she felt people were watching her. Butch, I got something for you. But Quentin must have good memories of Knoxville, too. He honors it in Pulp Fiction. It's where Bruce Willis's character's whole family is from, including that famous watch. This watch I got here was first purchased by your great-grandfather during the First World War. It was bought in a little general store in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it's even where Bruce Willis chooses to live in peace after he throws the big fight. 
Oh, fuck, Scotty, that is good news. That is great news, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, me and Fabiana are going to leave in the morning. Yeah, it'll probably take us a couple days to get down to Knoxville. Okay, my brother. <laughs> You're right. You're goddamn right. All right, Scotty. Next time I see you, we'll be on Tennessee time. Cool, brother. But Tennessee is also the place where Tarantino put Big Daddy's plantation in Django Unchained. I'm struck by that, by what early 70s rural Tennessee was like for a city boy who'd gone to a majority black school in L.A. And I'm struck by this image of a 10-year-old kid whose whole life is Hollywood, wondering if adults have decided he'll never get to go back to the place where he feels most at home, the movie theater. Everyone acted really suspicious with me about the whole Tennessee thing because it's like I was told I was going to Tennessee uh, to spend the summer with my grandmother. That's all I was told. So, like, I would be coming back, I guess, in August and start school where I had been going to school in California. And then California. starts in Then all of a sudden, starts. next thing I know, September starts and they're enrolling me in school. And no one's saying anything. No one, oh, by the way, things have changed. No, it was like, it was all decided for me and just, just not just tell Quentin about it. <laughs> and so now I guess I'm here and now I'm in school and now I'm going to school in Tennessee. And now I'm, you know, and now I'm about around a bunch of kids who are all racist, right? And I got to deal with it. And um, yeah, it was, no, it was, it was a, it was a very disturbing culture shock, actually. Um, I mean, in retrospect, I'm almost glad it happened because it gave me a, a different perspective on life and it gave me a different perspective of class and of people. It took me out of the world that I knew, which actually is not the worst thing in the world to happen to a child, all right, to have it. It's not fun and I didn't enjoy it and I actually had a lot of pain during the time. But in retrospect, I guess I'm kind of glad it happened. It, it gave me far more far more detailed memories about a very important time in, 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 in the history that I was living that I would have been, that would have completely over my head. That's true. And then, so then you get to catch up on the Kung Fu films yeah. later. Oh, I mean, was that like- Yeah, well, not only that though, like, okay, what I kept meaning to say, and I keep distracting myself, is the fact that, okay, so I'm really into this idea of martial art movies. So I can't see them. Oh, for, so you're hearing about them and you can't see I them. I can't see them, yeah. So I'm oh, hearing it's not about, even just that you're in a vacuum. You're like tortured by the fact that you can hear about oh, them. So what I would do is I would go to the school library and, you know, they had the new, newspaper for the, you know, they had, they had the newspaper. Okay, they had the Knoxville News Sentinel. And um, I'd get the Knoxville News Sentinel and I'd open up to the, to the, uh, to the movie page. And there was a period of there, maybe it's just because it's what I wanted to see. It was as if no other movies were playing in the theaters except Kung Fu movies. It was like all the big theaters, they weren't killing themselves to show Serpico, they, but they were killing themselves to show the Chinese professionals and the Chinatown Kid and uh, Triple Irons and stuff like that. And they just like filled the fucking uh, uh, local television stations with all the TV spots for those shows, uh, for those movies. And I would go and I would just look at one newspaper ad after another newspaper ad of all the movies I will never see. And it was so frustrating. I mean, I'm picturing you like drooling so much the paper is getting soaked. But so then when did you finally get to see Enter the Dragon? Okay, so. Back when I got back to California, every boy in school saw Enter the Dragon, except me. In fact, I even heard a kid even say, wow, is there any movie that anybody, that that more kids have seen more than Enter the Dragon? And they were like, no, there's not. Well, except for me. But I didn't even let people know I didn't see it. 
and I had heard enough about it. And you never let yourself be put in that position again. You've uh, yeah, always yeah. now yeah. seen yeah. everything. Well, I never let. I, I I could talk enough about it as if I had as if I had seen. It. I think Enter the Dragon is the second official kung fu movie that I saw. So it came out in '73. I don't see it till '77. Wow. But the weird thing, though, is by the time I finally watch it, almost four years after the fact, by this point in time, I've seen Kentucky Fried Movie. So I've seen the Fistful of Yen spoof of Enter the Dragon. Not knowing exactly it was a line-for-line, scene-for-scene spoof of Enter the Dragon. I mean, I knew the guy was obviously doing Bruce Lee, but I didn't know it was a complete Scene for scene, Mad Magazine takeoff on Air of the Dragon. This is not a charade. We need total concentration. Now, once again, this time, we theory. So I'm sitting there watching Air of the Dragon, and I believe me, I've seen I've seen Kentucky Fried movie five times by this time. So now I'm finally watching Enter the Dragon, the movie I've wanted to see. And it's like every other line is a line that the Zucker brothers fucked with and did something stupid with. And I'm and I just keep seeing the phantom jokes, right, of this movie. Let's back up for a second. Kentucky Fried Movie is this pioneering stream of consciousness comedy spoof, the ancestor of Airplane, Key and Peel, and Robot Chicken. And its version of Bruce Lee is one part badass kung fu warrior, one part Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. But all I want to do right now is to go back home. Back to Kansas. But my dear fellow, you've had the power to go back home all along. I have? All you have to do is click your heels together three times and say, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Which, in a way, makes Kentucky Fried Movie 100% the mishmashed, movie-crazy psyche of young Tarantino. But he's still a little mad at it. It was kind of ruined for me a little bit to have seen the spoof of it five times before. It cracked me up. I remember uh, I was talking to some guy once at Video Archives, and he was talking. He was just the right perfect age where he was like, um, he said, he saw Spaceballs before he saw Star Wars. So he saw like Spaceballs at like eight and loved it and thought it was amazing. And then he watched Star Wars. And he's like, what is this boring version of Spaceballs? It's like Spaceballs without the jokes. Who wants to watch this piece of crap? <laughs> Which I guess if you started with Spaceballs, you could actually think that. <laughs> I mean, a, I feel like I was shaped in so much of that same way. I read all the Mad Magazine stuff before yeah, yeah. I ever saw the originals of all the stuff. Yeah, was right. <laughs> but with this, I mean, it, I mean, for Bruce Lee, he wasn't around to see any of this. Yeah, I know. No, it's a touching. There's a moment in a, um, Roman Polanski's autobiography, Roman by Polanski, where you know they were friends, Roman Polanski and Bruce Lee, and he hit him up a bunch of times. I'm sure he probably talked him, trying to talk him into direct uh, uh, the Silent Flute as like a time. To the point that Roman was probably, oh, God, get this guy out of here. Uh, um, but um, but there's a really touching part of him leaving 
the Grauman's Chinese Theater, where Bruce really never getting any kind of satisfaction in Hollywood while he was alive. I mean, I guess he did, he did Enter the Dragon, but you know what I mean, before that, when Roman knew him well. Uh, and so it's, the movie's the biggest movie in America, and it's Roman leaving the Grauman's Chinese Theater, having just seen it with a packed audience, and Bruce is dead. He's not here to enjoy it. I mean, do you think that trade-off is ever worth it, being the biggest person but not getting to see it? Um... Well, conceivably, if you're Bruce Lee and you're like that much of a you're you're that much of an icon, and you are the 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 you know the beginning and the end of a of a sport or a genre or a, you know that's you know that's you know that's something uh, that's a lot actually that's a lot. Uh, uh, um, but is it worth it? Well, you're dead. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, does Polanski in that book get into the story I've heard about how he for a minute thought Bruce Lee might have been the one who killed Sharon yeah. Tate? Yeah, yeah. There's about seeing the glasses and everything, and so yeah, yeah and he, the killer left behind a pair of glasses, and Bruce Lee was like, "I forgot my glasses, or I lost them." And yeah, being yeah. like, "Oh dear, I will go with you." Did you kill my wife? Yeah, yeah. No, he did, and he he said he felt like a real, uh, uh, um, you know, he he felt like a real traitor for even thinking that. But 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 he said the police told him to think that way. That it was somebody who knew that it was somebody who like there was no problem walking inside. So it's it's somebody you know, you know, and. And that was not the case. But I mean, can you imagine you, you go through that kind of tragedy, that kind of bloodletting, and then the cops insist to you that it's somebody you know? I mean, what I love about what you do with these films, including Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood, is this idea of like alternative history. And yeah. I wonder, having Bruce Lee in this film, did you ever think of the alternative history of Bruce Lee being the killer? Uh, no, no, I, no. Well, I wouldn't do that to him. But Quentin does have Bruce Lee lose a fight to Cliff Booth, the stuntman played by Brad Pitt. I've been thinking about that scene a lot because it's already pretty polarizing. Quentin's version of Bruce Lee is cocky, which is true. But he loses, which is shocking. Especially when he loses to an older, milk-drinking, equally cocky white guy wearing a tuxedo. That scene feels like an off-handed insult to Lee's legacy. Which, given Tarantino's love for Lee, doesn't make sense. But then again, what if that scene is one of the keys to the movie? It's Cliff Booth's old Hollywood smashing up against Bruce Lee's new Hollywood, years before Lee was taken seriously. And though Booth wins the fight and, in his eyes, defends the honor of his generation, he loses the war. Because of that fight, Booth can't get any more work as a Hollywood stuntman. His on-screen career is effectively over. And Lee goes on to be a major star. No. You must remember, the enemy has only images and illusions behind which he hides his true motives. Destroy the image and you will break the enemy. Fast forward the movie a few years and Lee is changing history, while Pitt, he's probably still licking dog food. Pitt's character is so, 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 so over-the-top cool that I do want to watch Bruce Lee kick his ass. What are your thoughts when facing an opponent? There is no opponent. And why is that? Time for an intermission. This episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is brought to you by Care Of. Care Of is a subscription service that delivers vitamins and supplements customized for your specific health needs. Just take a short quiz and answer questions about your diet, lifestyle, fitness, and health goals, and Care Of puts together a personalized plan just for you. 
Whether you're looking for energy, better sleep, or something else to help you feel your healthiest, give yourself support this season with Care Of. Their fun online quiz takes only five minutes to find out your personal, scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. Then, Care Of delivers daily vitamin and supplement packs, all customized to your recommendations, so that you're only taking what you really need. It is so customized, the packets even say your name on them. Care Of also offers protein powders, available in individual on-the-go packets, personalized to your fitness goals and dietary preferences. You can modify your subscription at any time when your needs or preferences change. So if you want vitamins and you want them delivered to your house, here's how you get them. For 25% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code Tarantino. That's TakeCareOf.com, promo code Tarantino for 25% off your first order. And I also want to take a second to talk to you about another sponsor, Audible. Now, if you are listening to me, I'm guessing that you know all about Audible because they are the number one people who help bring you books on tape that you want to listen to because I'm guessing that you're a person who likes to learn a lot while you listen. And that is what Audible does because they have books in every kind of format for whatever you're interested in. Of course, they've got like the cool bestsellers. They've got business books. They've got memoirs. They have books that if you're listening to this episode, I bet you're going to be interested in wanting to hear. They're books I can actually vouch for. They're fantastic. The main one I think you're going to love is a book called Bruce Lee, A Life by Matthew Pauly. It's fantastic. It's narrated by Jonathan Todd Ross. It helps you get a really good view into the life of a man that, to be honest, most people associate with his characters more than they associate with the real man behind him. So I cannot recommend it enough. And if you want to check it out, Audible is the right place. Because at Audible, you get three titles every month. You can pick out an audiobook and you can pick out two Audible originals that you are unable to hear anywhere else. That is special, exclusive stuff. And you can also get unlimited access to more than 100 other audio-guided fitness programs. Also, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. You can keep up with everything. And you can access your Audible anytime on any device because it will always pick up exactly where you left off. So if you want to start listening to Audible today, you can have a 30-day free trial right now and get your first audiobook plus two Audible originals for free. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to audible.com slash Tarantino or text Tarantino to 500-500. That's Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Tarantino or text Tarantino to 500-500. And with that, let's get back to the show. Time for us to fast forward one decade to 1983. Quentin Tarantino's L.A. has undergone another cultural revolution. When he turned on the radio, this is what he heard. And if you're at the mall rocking to the Moon's Up a hit song Valley Girl, you can also see the cult classic comedy Valley Girl, directed by Martha Coolidge. It stars Nicolas Cage in his first lead role as a Hollywood punk named Randy, who falls in love with Julie, a girl from the Valley. But Randy has to get past her snobby, sheltered friends. Yeah, like Julie, you really get off hearing about all the parties. What do you mean? Well, because, like, you'll never be able to go to any as long as you got Randy. Like, don't you think they have parties over there? Oh, where? At the zoo? They think Julie should ditch Randy and get back together with her jerk Valley boyfriend, Tommy, played by Michael Bowen. Who else is there? Oh, the Val dude can touch me. I mean, she must be really freaking out. I love Valley Girl. And I got to admit, I was surprised to hear that Quentin loves Valley Girl, too. Here are the movie's screenwriters talking about meeting Quentin. 
uh, one of the first times I met Quentin Tarantino, we had dinner. Um, and at dinner, basically, he recited the uh, script, uh, uh, line and verse. Uh, about yeah, that. actually, I've only met uh, Quentin once uh, at a party uh, years later. And I don't know, maybe he says this to everybody he meets, whatever film it is. I don't know, but I, I chose to believe him. He said, oh, man, he said, you know, Valley Girl is my favorite film. And I thought, oh, cool. So Valley Girl, this movie comes out in 1983, you're 20 years old, Mm -hmm. but I was thinking that high school is actually a really long way away for you. You know, this Mm -hmm. is such a high school movie, but you Mm -hmm. had left high school five years before. Mm -hmm. I had this thought like, oh, I'm surprised you went to go see Valley Girl. Wouldn't you have felt a little old for it or like it was for kind of a younger group of people than you? Well, I saw everything, you know, and... um and in particularly in the 80s, you didn't think that way about high school movies because the people in it were, were your age or older. <laughs> they were, you know, I'm, I'm, the cages around my age. So I'm not thinking, oh, that's too young for me. I could have actually play that role. Were you a Nick Cage type at the time? I think we both were kind of shaggy dog kind of guys. You know, uh, uh, I'm not saying I was the sexiest him, but I mean, but we were both kind of shaggy dog kind of guys. Um, uh, I was actually, uh, both me and him have actually thought we'd be good brothers in a movie at some point. Um, but the I thing can is, see that. You should make that happen. You've yeah. never worked with him. Yeah, no, we, we've always talked, we've talked about acting oh, together more than anything else. It just never happened. Important, but I will tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach in my pocket. I'm going to get a dime. I'm going to go down to the phone booth. I'm going to make a phone call, come right back up and talk to Damn you. it, why do you always barge in like that? Well, also Martha Coolidge, I mean, she in this movie put forth this dialogue, this way of talking that I think changed the way people really spoke and also the way people spoke in movies. I don't know about that. I mean, the song does that and they kind of do an okay version of it. It seems like a movie version of the song though. I I really got to, yeah, I got to push back against that. No, that's that's Moon Zappa who did all that in the song. Her shit was on point and it sounded like a new language and it kind of blew everyone's mind. The movie is them trying to talk like that. It's it's not coming. It doesn't have the same authenticity as as Moon Zappa does in her raps in the song. Gotcha. <laughs> and that's just my opinion. But. <laughs> so much of Valley Girl is about how conformist the Valley society is. I mean, did mass culture feel that conformist to you at the time as something that you wanted to kind of rebel against? No, not to me. But I mean, you know, I, I, I um. I'm not the right guy to ask about that for the simple fact that, like, I didn't go to high school. I dropped out of I dropped out of uh, junior high in like ninth grade, you know. So uh, the minute I saw those clicks start was about run, right when I just said I'm out of here. <laughs> so you know, so the whole kind of thing of like you know Hollywood versus the Valley or white privileged school versus urban you know, urban blight decay school. I, I don't know how I don't know what was going on with that stuff, <laughs> but um. But Valley Girl was 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 special for this uh, for a couple different reasons. It was um, especially special out here in California because it, it's a California movie. I mean, does that mean that you a that when you watch this movie, it feels really familiar? Like it feels like your life at that moment. People hanging out at diners, people cruising Hollywood Boulevard. Does no, it's, it feel it's still, romanticized. It's, no, it's it, it's not exactly my life because I guess you're right. I'm a couple years past that. I mean, in a way that like, I mean, well, again, like Valley Girl wasn't about school. So like this, okay, for example, okay, Fast Times at Ridgemont High going to school out in California. I went to a black school and I went to a white school. Okay. The white school was exactly like, it was exactly like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you know? So I definitely did respond to that. Now, 
when I was a kid in school, the, the movie that reminded me the most of school uh, was Carrie. Ah, yes, Carrie, the horror movie about how high school bullying kills. Okay, maybe I see why Quentin dropped out. You know, the kids in Carrie, that the high school in Carrie, okay, I recognize that immediately. Okay, that that's, you know, they're older than I am. I mean, I would still be in uh, uh, like seventh, uh, sixth grade or seventh grade uh, around that time. That's the high school kids, but that was exactly what the, high, the way I mean, the high school you... kids were. But also there was another, you know, there was another movie that was sort of, I considered it My American Graffiti a movie in the 70s that came out called uh, The Pom-Pom Girls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, directed by Joseph Rubin and amongst uh, other people, and it had uh, Robert Carradine. And it's kind of done like American Graffiti, except it's not nostalgic. It's actually 70s, you know, it's it's van-driving, puka shell-wearing, uh, uh, OP-shirt-wearing 70s. Uh, but it's, it's a really good movie. It's terrific, and Robert Carradine is fantastic in it. But I even remember thinking of watching it, loving it at the time, and thinking, hey, this is sort of like my American graffiti. The way my parents respond to, to those movies is how I'm kind of responding to this one. In The Pom-Pom Girls, Robert Carradine, who would go on to star in Revenge of the Nerds, he does get ketchup-covered french fries shoved up his nose. But when the head of the school accuses the class of stealing a fire truck, he also gets to talk, well, kind of like Quentin Tarantino. Sir, I was not involved, but I have reason to believe it was the work of left-handed speed-snorting bikers riding down the coast looking for spills, thrills, and fire trucks. Now, I cannot be 100% sure. Sir! The thing that's so special about Valley Girl is the music it plays is exactly the KROQ lineup when that KROQ new wave music just broke and it became the station. For a lot, you know, unless you're listening to the Who and Black Sabbath at KOLS, or the Stones at KOLS, then you were listening to KROQ because that was where the new shit was. And the Val and Valley Girl had all those songs during the years that they. That they premiere, so there's. It's not a look back. It's not like okay, let's look back in 1983 and let's come up with the perfect KROQ soundtrack that would be great for that time. No, they used it at that time. Those songs, when you went and saw Valley Girl, those songs were still on the radio. K Rock is here to bring you the best new music. K Rock, the station that was first to bring you Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, and Wham, continues its commitment to bring you new music in Southern California. The way in my movie, the 93KHJ, the boss radio, is this ubiquitous thing that is all throughout the film, and it kind of says it's it's the sound of Southern California, it's the sound of Los Angeles, because um, it is in the zeitgeist, and to such a degree that other stations wanted the KHJ format. So they would just like listen to KHJ and do what they did and play the songs that they played. Seven hits in a row, or as my competition calls them, the seven deadly spins. 
with Charlie Tuna at 612 from KHJ. Here's a brand you know, so all of a sudden you could have KHJ in Cincinnati, you could have KHJ in Austin, you could have KHJ somewhere else, you know, Nashville. But that didn't happen again until the 80s when the station out here, KROQ, exploded. And they exploded with all the new wave music. Moving forward, using all my breath. Making love to you was never said. That became so popular, and, that, and, it, and it said Los Angeles, and it became so 80s, early 80s zeitgeist, that uh, also, like KHJ, other uh, uh, radio stations all over the nation started buying the KROQ format. Quentin tries to give audiences a sense of that zeitgeist embrace in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. KHJ is the musical link of the movie, the one thing on everyone's stereo. It connects has-beens like DiCaprio's Rick Dalton and never-was's like Pitt's Cliff Booth to up-and-comers like Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate. And if you want to use your imagination about it, a little kid named Quentin who is being imprinted with the memories that 50 years later he's going to try to recreate on film. Famous or almost famous or never famous or eventually famous, they're all united by listening to the same songs and the same root beer and sunscreen commercials. This, Quentin seems to be saying, is what culture used to be like all the way up through his own Valley Girl generation. It was a time when everyone had Tony Basil's Oh, Mickey, you're so fine stuck in their heads before cell phones put each of us in our own bubble. Dusty Springfield at 627 at KHK. Don't forget about me. Oh, you forgot. Well, we're not playing charades. This is Charlie Tuna. No matter how you feel about one of Quentin Tarantino's films, whether or not you're also hoping to see Bruce Lee punch Cliff Booth in the nose, something that makes them special is that they are one of the last things that gets everyone to stop what they're doing, go see the same movie, and talk about it. Today, he's one of the last artists who creates mass culture alongside, well, the Avengers. But back in the day, Valley Girl didn't have to save the universe to earn its moment in time. So I saw it when it came out and I liked it. I have to say, though, I really liked Nick Cage in it. It didn't hit me what a zeitgeist movie it was then. Um, I don't think I'd quite realize the effect yet of the KROQ music. But also, there was this really— As in you don't really know that you're in a moment until the moment's over? And, uh, yeah. Well, the moment even wasn't over, but, but I, yeah, it was, I, it was still too close to the moment to actually realize what, a, what an effect they did. You know, those songs weren't quite as iconic to me as they would become. You've just heard Men at Work. We have more dedications that go out tonight to Billy from Dina. She says, you're a fox. Andrea deducts she'll do anything to get you back. To Julie, his favorite valley girl, Randy sends his undying love and says, like, come back soon, you know? But then also, when I realized that the movie really was onto something, was there was a little dollar, you know, dollar fifty movie theater that was in the South Bay uh, called the Marina Three. It was in Redondo Beach. So all of a sudden, I'm noticing that Valley Girl, because you know it's a dollar movie theater. The, the movies do what they're going to do all over town, and they, they on their way out of town, they stop at this theater, and so they play there one week, maybe two weeks. Valley Girl has like been playing there for five weeks already, and then I just kind of decide to see it again. And so I go and see it again, and the audience is full of young people. It's like Saturday or Sunday. And like I said, I'm 20, so I'm a young person. And we're all laughing, and I'm realizing, oh, they're holding on to Valley Girl because Valley Girl is doing really well. 
And people are seeing it for like the second time at the Marina 3, and they really love it. And so a lot of kids on dates, a lot of uh, groups of girls, a lot of groups of boys. And I, that's when I realized, oh, this movie really is talking to the subculture that is that, that that it's making the movie for. And it ended up playing there like nine weeks because it was just, it did good. So they, they, they just, it was just people kept going to see it. They would change the other movie it was playing with, but they'd keep Valley Girl. I mean, so it struck a nerve, which makes me wonder, is this what dating was like in 1983? Uh well, there was a, you know, not that I was Mr. Date, but I mean, yeah, but there, you know, there, especially if there was a, a, a young, a young people movie, yeah. all right, like a Fast Times at Ridgemont High or like a Valley Girl or Beat Street or anything like that, that you might want to see. Yeah, that, that, that would be your Saturday night. You go, you go see that. I mean, I have heard though that you have every line of Valley Girl memorized. Oh, no, I don't. No, 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 I don't. I don't have every, I don't like it that much. All right. I, I, I like it. I, I like it for the piece of pop culture real estate that it has. Uh, but I mean, you put Tony Basil, you hired her to be your choreographer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, if I, okay. Yeah, but I don't, I don't associate her with Valley Girl. I associate <laughs> her with Easy Rider. I associate her with Ted. I associate, I associate her with more of her 60s stuff. I associate her killing Bruce Davidson. You and, cast uh, Michael uh, Bowen, the villain in Valley yes, Girl, I did cast three Valley. times. Yes, I, yes, I did. Because yeah, he's terrific. I mean, you, you cast know. him in uh, Jackie Brown. I didn't cast E.G. Daly. Now, if I was really into Valley Girl, E.G. Daly would be in every movie I ever did. <laughs> and I would have worked with Deborah Foreman and and uh, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, uh, Nick Cage by now. No, but I'm a big fan of the movie. And I'm a fan of Martha Coolidge. Wait a minute, where are we going to go? Okay then, Bluff called. E.G. Daly, who plays one of Julie's Valley friends, is like totally fantastic in the movie. And who doesn't want to see Quentin make a movie with Nick Cage? What are we going to do? Of course, in 1983, Quentin isn't making any movies. Quentin the Kid does not become Quentin the Filmmaker until our third episode. Now, to me, Hollywood Shuffle was actually inspirational for like the way he did it and also the way it could be done. Refill your popcorn one last time and join us for the final episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation. Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is produced by The Ringer and written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson. Our executive producer is Sean Fennessy, and our senior producer is Bobby Wagner. Theme music by Evan Campbell, and special thanks to Bill Simmons and Juliet Littman. <laughs>